welcome back to the Spirit of Prophecy podcast. Appreciate you joining me again today. Please like and share this video. Help me get the word out. It doesn't take any time to push like, share it on social media, hit subscribe if you haven't done it already. Help me get the word out about this. Uh, Subscribe on all the platforms that we are on. And we are really hoping that the Lord can use this to really help spread the message about the truth on the subject of prophecy. We love talking about it, and we are looking forward to having some great conversations. And Lord willing, this week, I have a very exciting interview scheduled. I don't like officially uh, saying uh, who it is until it actually happens because people might change their mind. But I am really fired up about having this individual on the program and be watching if you subscribe. Um, I these are pre-recorded, and I typically um, announce them w- once they are uploaded. I'll upload them, set them to premiere, and so you'll be able to see what's coming. And so once it's recorded, I'm going to get it uploaded. It will be announced. You will see it on there. And I am really excited about uh, this guest that I should be uh, interviewing. But again. I don't want to make any promises because you never know people could change their mind. But today on our subject, I want to talk about, or I want to ask a question, I guess would be the title of this program, and that is why all the red herrings? Why all the red herrings? And a red herring fallacy, if you're not familiar with it, is it's a logical fallacy that often takes place when you're having a conversation and an argument. And a red herring, it's a misleading statement, question, or argument meant to redirect a conversation from its original topic. Kind of where that comes from, as they say back in the day when they were training hunting dogs that uh, to follow a scent and to follow a path, they would often take some dead fish that smelled really bad and they would drag them across that path in an attempt to redirect the dogs. And they would use that to try to just keep the dogs and train them to stay focused on the scent that they are following. And it was real easy for a dog when all of a sudden it hits this new pungent smell to just go chasing after it. And they didn't want them doing that. And often when people are arguing with you and they are losing the argument in a particular area, they will bring things up in an attempt to redirect you from where you're going because you're about to hunt them down. You're about to prove them wrong. And so they they like to distract you. And it's important, too, that you learn to stay focused on the topic at hand. If we are honest about our position, then shouldn't we be honest about other people's position? If we are wanting to change people's minds, how are we going to change people's minds if we are misrepresenting their position? If I am here today and I'm trying to change the mind of a pre-tribber or an amillennialist or something like that, and then I get up and I completely lie about what they believe, or I'm just wrong about what they believe, then why should they believe the things that I say? I'm going to lose trust. And so red herrings, they don't actually accomplish anything except to just divert the person that's, that's hunting you down, that's about to win the argument. So we shouldn't do that kind of thing. And, and I don't expect that from honest people. I don't expect it from intelligent people. And so what we're going to do today, we're going to look at a book, a very uh, popular book by a couple of very well-known individuals. And that is uh, from Charting the End Times by Tim LaHaye and Thomas Ice. Tim LaHaye, 
one of the authors of the famous Left Behind series. And uh, Tim LaHaye, I believe he died a while back. Thomas Ice, I did meet him uh, a few years ago. I've had, a, I've talked to him, and a very nice individual, very intelligent individual. Um, I, I really liked the guy. And, but at the same time, when I'm reading this book, I'm like, what's going on here? Now, in their defense, I will say that when it comes to the pre-wrath position, at the time they wrote this book. That the pre-wrath position, it was definitely around. I mean, there were books out on it. Uh, many people have uh, have had this position over the years, but it hadn't got a whole lot of traction. The copyright of this book is 2001. I believe I got it shortly after that. I imagine if they were to uh, write it again today, they'd probably have a section on the pre-wrath position. But uh, e- either way, in this section I'm going to read, it's chapter 38. It's called The Various Views of the Rapture. And it shows the four views, the pre-tribulational view, the partial rapture view, which I've never met anybody that believes that. I won't even go into that. The mid-tribulational view and the post-tribulational view. So it goes on after it explains the positions, uh, why, the pre, the, why the rapture must be pre-tribulational. goes on to say, Will the Lord come back for his church? before, in the middle, or at the end of the tribulation. When properly understood, the scriptures are quite clear on this subject. We believe they teach that the rapture will occur before the tribulation begins. Here are some reasons why. So I'm going to make sure I'm careful, especially for those who are just listening to audio, to let you know uh, when I'm reading their book and when I am just speaking. But they are about to give four reasons why the rapture must be or five reasons, I'm sorry, why the rapture must be pre-tribulational. We're going to go through these, and I'm going to show you they reek of red herrings. I feel like these men should have known better than to do something like that. So were they ignorant about the other positions, or were they just using red herrings? Are they trying to distract because they don't have a good argument? And Understand, too, while these men may not have been thinking about the pre-wrath position, many people today, in an attempt to debunk the pre-wrath position, use these same logical fallacies. They use these same arguments almost as if they are reading from this book. And it is very frustrating. I, I, I've talked to many people who do have a view like mine, uh, who have expressed their frustration listening people as they try to explain their position and then they say the things that these guys are saying as if they're just parroting them and repeating them and without a doubt these are 100% just red herrings that don't prove anything so notice the first reason that they gave why the rapture must be pre-tribulational is the Lord himself promised to deliver us well here's my question how does the mid-trib or the post-trib or the pre-wrath position, teach that the Lord does not deliver us. Of course we're going to be delivered. You know, there are some things that we all agree on in all of the rapture camps. We need to focus on where we disagree. Why aren't we focused on where we actually disagree? Why are you going to give a proof for the pre-tribulational view that's something that all the positions would agree on? That's not right. That's not fair. That's dishonest. 
Let's, let's continue reading. A clear promise guaranteeing the church's rapture before the tribulation is found in Revelation 3.10. Since you have kept the, the since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. NIV. Uh, though, though this promise appears in a letter written to the church at Philadelphia, we can be certain it refers to members of the universal church throughout the ages. The passage refers to a future event. The Church of Philadelphia has long since been destroyed and disbanded. This letter was a letter to all the churches, and this promise will not be fulfilled until a time of trial that comes upon the whole world, not just the church at Philadelphia. So here's what we need to actually have a conversation about. If we were trying to have an honest conversation proving the pre-tribulational view over these other views, then you have to define this hour of trial or hour of temptation as it is in the King James Bible. How come you can just say that the hour of temptation or trial is Daniel's 70th week? How can you say, how? where's your proof that that's Daniel's 70th week? Where is your proof that that's talking about the seven-year tribulation? Where's your proof of that? Where is your proof that it's talking about the tribulation? Where's your proof of that? You have no proof of that. You know, and, and you know, so the the thing is, you know, a pre-rather, they believe if if they want to define, if we're allowed to just define the time of uh, temptation however we want, I could define it as when God pours out His wrath. You know, I, I could I could refer, if I'm a mid-triver, I could say it's the second half of Daniel's seventieth week. You know, if I'm a post-triver, I could say it's Armageddon, or like a post-seven year guy. You know. You can't just take that line and then declare a meaning for it and, and not define it. Every view can, you know, not one other view that is mentioned in this book here of those four views, you know, teaches that we will go through the hour of temptation or trial, as the NIV puts it, that God promised to deliver us from. Nobody teaches that. So you have to prove that that hour of temptation is Daniel's 70th week. Good luck with that. Good luck with that. You didn't prove anything. Let's go back to reading this section. In addition, the word from in Revelation 3.10 literally means out of, which is now rendered many other times in the Bible. God is saying, I will keep you out of the wrath to come. Guess what? Pre-wrathers teach that God will keep us from the wrath to come. We believe that. Okay, now, maybe some post-seven-year people don't believe that. I don't know. But I will 100% agree we have been promised to be delivered from the wrath to come. I agree with that. So this doesn't prove a pre-tribulational view. This does not prove a pre-Daniel 70th week view. It doesn't prove any of those things. And so to put that out there as a proof, and that this gives pre-tribulation more credibility over these other ones is just absolutely false and misleading. And I use that and mis, I say it again, misleading. It's a red herring. These guys are until 
intelligent enough to know better than to do something like this. Why? Why would you use this as proof? Have you not even looked into the other positions? Or are you intentionally trying to deceive? Number two, only the pre-trib view preserves imminency. Only the pre-trib view preserves imminency. Now, I actually would disagree with that statement. I've said this before and I'll say it again and I'm not going to cover it right now. There is one other way to get imminency. There is one other way to get imminency, but I don't know really anybody who would have this view. But there's there's one consistent way you could get imminency, but I think it's a really tough sell. It's a really tough thing to prove. And it's not the way the pre-tribbers are teaching it. 100% no, it is not. But imminency, we'll go on to read, is the word used to refer to the doctrine that Christ could come at any moment to call his bride to be with him in his father's house. This is why scripture has so many admonitions to watch. Like in Matthew 24, I'm talking now, that people are saying is not the rapture. They should have put those verses in there. It was in Matthew 24 where it's telling us to watch. It was in the Olivet Discourse. The people are saying that's for the Jews. That's about Armageddon. That's not about the rapture. The admonitions to watch were all are, are all things around the Olivet Discourse. And it's all about the second coming of Christ that people are saying is not the rapture. I think it's interesting that it mentions the admonitions to watch, but it doesn't show us those admonitions. That's interesting. That's very interesting right there. But it says, uh, yeah, to watch, be ready, and to look for him to come at any moment. Whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. Hold on. We are to be looking for the coming of Christ. Why did you add at any moment? What scripture did you get that from? For sure, we are to be looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing. We are to look for that blessed hope and glorious appearing. Not going to take time to go through it. In this book, they teach the blessed hope and the glorious appearing are two different events. The blessed hope is the rapture. The glorious appearing is Armageddon. That's what they teach in this book. It's in there. Well, it's telling us to look for the glorious appearing. If Then that would make that imminent according to your logic. If according to your logic, looking for something means it's imminent, then the glorious appearing also is imminent. Now, I believe the blessed hope and glorious appearing are the same thing. But proof that it's not imminent is in 2 Peter, it talks about looking for and hasting unto that coming day of God. Where, where, and it talks about the heavens being on fire and the elements melting with a fervent heat. That it, Even these guys would say, that's at the end of everything. And it's telling us to look for it. So then that would mean the destruction of the earth by fire is imminent according to their reasoning. This is bad reasoning. Looking for is does not prove imminency especially if the Bible specifically mentions certain things that are come before. We often get accused of teaching people to look for the Antichrist instead of Jesus Christ. No, we're not. Just like I'll tell my kids, if they're looking for Christmas, I'll tell them Halloween's coming first. And now they're watching for Halloween, not because they want Halloween, but because they know they've got to get through Halloween before we can get to Christmas. And I'm for sure looking for Jesus Christ. But that man of sin needs to be revealed first, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the son of perdition. So yeah, I'm looking for him, but not because I'm anxious to see him, but I'm real anxious to see what's going to come after him. 
And so when I see him, I'll know we're that much closer to the coming of Jesus Christ. If I want to drive to Nebraska, I'm going to be looking for Iowa before I look for Nebraska. Nebraska is where I'm trying to get, but I have to go through Iowa before I can get to Nebraska. That's just, that's just the way it is. And so this is bad reasoning. This is bad logic. So uh, note that them adding that at any moment thing, that is ridiculous. You can't do that. And that's what people do. They add these phrases in there. They'll, they'll include biblical terms, looking for, watching, that's in the Bible, but then they'll add that at any moment. Watch out for people who add to the scriptures. And so it says the other three views destroy that immediate at any time coming. In fact, those views have Christians looking not for Christ to come at any time, but rather for the Antichrist and the tribulation. And they say that like that's so bad. But when we look at 2 Thessalonians 2, and Paul said, let no man deceive you as that the day of Christ is at hand. What did he say? That day shall not come except there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed. Paul said these things are going to happen first. Jesus said the same thing. He said even him who's coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. So you they've made it a sin or like this terrible thing to be looking for the Antichrist but they can't show you in the Bible that we're not supposed to do that. But I can show you in the Bible in two different places where the Bible specifically said that certain, th- you know, the Antichrist or the man of sin is going to come before Jesus Christ comes. You know, you know now, would, would we accuse people in the Old Testament who, for, who are looking for the Messiah to not be looking for the Messiah because they believe that Elias must first come. Remember that? Remember when the disciples asked, saying, hey, why say it the scribes that Elias must first come? And Jesus said that was right. Elias was going to come first and restore all things. The, the coming of the Messiah was prophesied, but even then there was something that was prophesied to come before that. But people, they were mainly looking for the Antichrist, or not the Antichrist, the Messiah. They were looking for the Messiah. And so, of course, they wanted to see Elias because they wanted to see what comes after that, the Messiah. That's what they were really looking for, forward to. And so we do. We look for signs. When If I'm driving to Nebraska, I'm looking for signs. I'm looking for that sign. I got to look for the sign that says we're 200 miles away before we're 100 miles away. And before I get to my the actual destination I'm trying to get to in Nebraska, I've still got to wait and see that sign that says welcome to Nebraska. So um, this is just bad, bad reasoning. And, but yet everybody uses this. You're looking for the Antichrist. I'm looking for Jesus Christ. You're looking for the Undertaker. I'm looking for the Upper Taker. Well, okay, first off, I'm not looking for the Undertaker. I'm hoping to survive. But, you know, these are great one-liners, but they don't prove anything, but yet they use it as proof. These are your proofs. So far, two out of five, no proof. Let's keep reading. Number three, the church is to be delivered from the wrath to come. Pre-wrathers believe we're going to be delivered from the wrath to come. That's not proof. Don't use things that we all agree on. Use the things that we disagree on. Let's talk about the things we disagree on. So what do they do? They talk about pre-trib is right because God promised to deliver us from the wrath to come. And then what do they do? They show all this evidence that we are going to be delivered from the wrath to come. Wait, but the problem is that's not proof. 
because pre-wrathers believe we're going to be delivered from the wrath to come. You need to prove what is the wrath of God. That's what you need to prove. But we're not. they don't want to have that conversation. They want to talk about something else. And it is, it's very frustrating when you're trying to have an intelligent conversation and these people are trying to get you chase red herrings the whole time. And whenever people do this, you just need to stop them. You're right. Amen. Hallelujah. We have been deli- we are delivered from the wrath to come. Now let's talk about what the wrath is. But again, too, then you're kind of jumping to another subject and they're still avoiding 2 Thessalonians 2. They're still avoiding Matthew 24. They're still avoiding so many things. And that's what typically happens. You got to stay focused on these things. And so let's read this section. The promise in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come, was given by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul to a young church planted on a second missionary journey. He had only three weeks to ground this church in the word of God before being driven out of town. Many of his teachings during that brief period evidently pertain to Bible prophecy and end times events. For this letter, one of the first books of the New Testament to be written emphasizes the second coming, the imminent return of Christ, the rapture, the tribulation, and other end time subjects. Paul apparently considered these topics essential for new converts. Paul mentions the second coming in every chapter, so there is no doubt about the main subject of his letter. After complimenting his readers on their faith and testimony, he commends them for turning to God from idols, to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. The context of the passage is the rapture. For Christians are not waiting for the glorious appearing. Paul tells these people in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12, that the latter will not occur until Antichrist or that lawless one is revealed. No, the Christians in Thessalonica were awaiting the coming of Christ for his church. That is the rapture. They already knew the tribulation or wrath to come would follow the rapture and that God had promised to rescue them from the wrath to come. So notice just so many things they just assumed here because they they mention how 2 Thessalonians 2, that's referring to the glorious appearing. And they're saying that because it is clear. It's talking about the coming of Christ and it being after the revealing of the man of sin. So that, But they're saying, no, that's the glorious appearing. That is the, that's the event of Matthew 24 that they say happens after Daniel's 70th week. But no, you cannot prove that. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul said, I beseech you by the coming of the Lord. They rightfully said every chapter in 1 Thessalonians mentioned the coming of Christ, and it referred to it as the coming of the Lord. He called it the coming of the Lord every time. He never called it the rapture. He never called it the glorious appearing. He didn't call it the blessed hope in, this, in, in, in 1 Thessalonians. He called it the coming of our Lord, and he was talking about the same thing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. There is no doubt about it. And so uh, understand, this proved nothing. Yet preachers will get up and arrogantly use these things as proof of a pre-tribulational rapture when pre-wrath people agree with all these things. But you've still not proven Daniel's 70th week is God's wrath on the world. You've still not proven that the tribulation is God's wrath on the world. You've not proven that. And that is that is a great conversation that we will definitely have one of these days. 
Um, you know, they didn't they didn't prove imminency in this book. And I plan on doing uh, a program just on imminency. And it is astounding how weak that doctrine is. I'm looking forward to covering that. So number four, and you'll notice too, they'll, they'll number all these things, but a lot of it's the same point over and over again. Here's the fourth proof. Christians are not appointed to wrath. Well, wait a minute. The first point says the Lord promised to deliver us from the wrath. And so this is the same point. Because they don't have many points, they're making the same points and they're rewording them. These guys are way more intelligent than that. But yet, when it, it it's so funny how intelligent people, doctrinally sound people, and I don't know all these guys' doctrine on things, but I've seen this with doctrinally sound people who write on salvation and write on a lot of things. When it comes to eschatology, all hermeneutics go out the window, all soundness, all ability to prove things thoroughly just go out the window. And it's because they're wrong. It's because they're wrong. And here's another thing we got to realize too. Sometimes there's things that we could be right on where we don't have a lot of proof. We don't always have to give four points, a little song and a dance and a poem. Sometimes we got one verse. That's all we got. Sometimes that's all we need. Sometimes we might only have one verse and it's not real clear. You know, we're, we're assuming we're right. You know, it's kind of like my program I did last Monday about Michael the Archangel. That's not an open and shut slam dunk case. It's just a good possibility. It slaughters the idea that the Holy Spirit is the restrainer that's taken out. But again, it's not positive proof. And so you know what? What I would not do and what I did not do in that program is get up and try to read 75 verses proving my point just to make it look like I'm using a lot of Bible. No, I don't have a lot of Bible. Sometimes we don't have a lot of Bible for things. And if you don't have a lot of Bible for something, don't use a lot of Bible. People got to get a hold of that. There are some subjects we don't have a lot of Bible for. Doesn't mean we're wrong, but you hurt yourself. You hurt your argument when you misuse Bible to try to prove your point and you make yourself look bad when you're just repeating points. They're repeating a point right here. Christians are not appointed to wrath. I agree. We are not appointed to wrath. This does not prove pre-tribulation. But he says, according to 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. This passage, which follows the strongest passage on, on the rapture in the Bible, in 1 Thessalonians 4, must be considered in light of the context. After teaching about the rapture, Paul takes his readers to times and seasons of the day of the Lord. Some suggest this refers to a single day on which Christ returns to this earth to set up his kingdom, but that is not consistent with the Bible's other uses of the phrase, the day of the Lord. Sometimes this phrase does refer to the glorious appearing, but on other occasions it encompasses the rapture, the tribulation, and the glorious appearing. And they're not proving any of this. They are just telling you stuff. Folks, the glorious appearing is the rapture. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we also appear with him in glory. We are looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing. When we see him, we will be like him, for we shall see him uh, see Him as he is. So uh, to, to say that's not the, the rapture is not the glorious appearing is ridiculous. But people think of that because they think of the rapture as being something that just catches us by surprise and we just disappear. No, we are going to see him. And we're going to be like him when we see him. The Bible tells us that. And we are going to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. But people don't want you 
looking for an event where we're going to see Christ because then you might associate it with behold, he cometh with eyes or with clouds and every eye shall see him. And we absolutely should associate it with that. Uh, won't go into that. But anyway, for 1 Thessalonians 5.9 makes it clear that God has not appointed us to wrath. The tribulation in parentheses they put. They're just telling you that's the tribulation, meaning Daniel's 70th week, meaning seven years. They've not proved that. They've not proved that at all. But to obtain salvation or deliverance from it. Since so many saints will be martyred during the tribulation, there will be few, if any, alive at the glorious appearing of Christ. The promise cannot mean, then, that he will deliver believers during the time of wrath, for the saints who live through the tribulation will not be delivered. In fact, most will be martyred. To be delivered out of it, the church will have to be raptured before it begins. Since the tribulation is especially the time of God's wrath, and since Christians are not appointed to wrath, then it follows that the church will be raptured before the tribulation. In short, the rapture occurs before the tribulation, while the glorious appearing occurs after it. And they are right. The glorious appearing occurs after the tribulation, but the rapture and glorious appearing are, in fact, the same thing There's that is so easy to prove. So this is this is horrible. This is just what they're trying to shove down our throats here. And notice, too, that the wrath that they keep referring to is saints being martyred. Since when has saints being martyred been God's wrath? Saints have been being martyred forever. The disciples were martyred. Were they under God's wrath? Of course not. And here's something else, too. This is bonus. In Revelation chapter 6, when it gets to the fifth seal, it talks about the souls of them that were martyred that are under the throne. And what are they saying? How long, O Lord, dost thou not avenge our blood? You know what they were doing? They were calling for God's wrath to come because they were martyred. Now, if the pre-tribbers are right and that all of the seals are God's wrath, then why wasn't God like, what do you think I've been doing for the last four seals? What do you think's been going on? No, it hasn't come yet. He said, no, there's still more to come. We're waiting for the rest of your brethren. There were still more martyrs to come. And then eventually it came when we have the seven vials of God's wrath. In them are filled up the wrath of God. And it is poured out without mixture. We have, without a doubt, God's wrath being poured out in the vials. And I think it is a very sound argument to show that the trumpets uh, are, in fact, the wrath of God's too, because of uh, it doesn't explicitly say that, but the way they everything kind of coincides when you look at Revelation 6, after the sixth seal, and they're saying the great day of his wrath has come, that sure enough, it's beginning then. I think that is a very sound argument. But it's not explicitly stated until the vials. I mean, in them are filled up the wrath of God. It's my position. The trumpets and vials are all God's wrath. But you can't make a good argument. You can't make a consistent argument about the seals. I can show you where the martyrs are under the throne of God in heaven. The souls, not the bodies, because the rapture hasn't come yet. The souls are under the throne calling on God to pour out his wrath. You know why? Because he hasn't yet. So, uh, sorry, bad argument. You can't, pre-tribbers won't even try to answer this. They're going to, red herrings. That's all they got. Fifth one. Fifth one. 
the church is absent in Revelation 4 through 18. So that proves it right there because the church is absent from Revelation 4 through 18. The church is mentioned 17 times in the first three chapters. Whoa, man. I I think they think we're all stupid. The first, okay, chapters 2 and 3 are specifically written to seven churches given prophecies for each of those seven churches of things about them, giving them specific rebukes, specific admonitions. So, of course, that word is going to be used a lot because those first chapters were specifically about those seven local churches. But when we get to chapter 4, after they are given the prophecies about the things which must shortly come to pass to on those churches, in chapter 4, he says, I'm going to show you the things which must be hereafter. He speaks of things that are going to be in the future that aren't necessarily going to come on those seven churches. So again, the fact that churches you know, are mentioned all these times before when it's talking about the things which must shortly come to pass, and then it doesn't mention those, church, those churches anymore when it's talking about things that's going to come in the future, it doesn't prove anything. That is not, that is not proof. And here's another thing it doesn't prove. It doesn't prove everything that we read from chapters 4 through 18 is God's wrath. It's just showing thing. It's showing things that are going to be hereafter. It's showing things of the future. So um, it goes on. The church is mentioned seventeen times in the first three chapters of Revelation. But after John, a member of the church, is called up to heaven at the beginning of chapter four, he looks down on the events of the tribulation, and the church is not mentioned or seen again until chapter nineteen, when she returns to earth with her bridegroom at his glorious appearing. Why? The answer is so obvious. She isn't in the tribulation. She is raptured to be with the Lord before it begins. Yeah, I mean, we can't be any of the saints get martyred. We can't be the saints that the Antichrist is making war. How is the Antichrist making war with the saints, not the church? The saints are the Jews. Says who? No, we're the saints of God. We are the people of God. That's not proof. The Antichrist is making war with the saints. He's making war with the remnant of her seed and those that keep the commandments of God. So he's go- that's who he's going after. Just because it doesn't use the word church, these are horrible, these are not arguments. Okay? The- and so he goes on, there are many other reasons for believing the rapture occurs prior to the tribulation. Okay, if there's many other reasons, why did you use the same reasons in your five reasons? Why were, you, why were you repeating reasons and just rewording them if there were so many? If you really needed those five reasons, you know you, could, you should have used some of those other ones instead of just rewording some of the same reasons. Keep reading. It says, these are found in Tim LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible. A uh, little pitch there for a study Bible. And, you know, you can find some of the stuff in Schofield Study Bible too. You know what you can't find? You can't find this in the text of a King James Bible. It goes on to say the pre-trib position does not have answers for all the questions regarding the Lord's coming for his church. Since there is no one verse or passage that gives all the details of the Lord's coming in a neat little package, it is necessary to consider all the second coming scriptures together. Our conclusion is the pre-trib rapture fits the biblical model better than any other views. It fits well with all that the Bible teaches about the end times, and it is a common sense view that brings comfort to the hearts of believers, which is one of the main purposes 
for teaching end time prophecy, 1 Thessalonians 4.18. Now, let me prove. They just misused that Bible verse. They said the rapture teaching is supposed to bring comfort. That's one of the purposes based on 1 Thessalonians 4.18. Well, wait a minute. Is it giving us comfort that we won't go through tribulation? Or is it giving comfort to a church who was in tribulation? And everyone will agree. Paul said they were in tribulation. They were appointed there too. The church in Thessalonica was in tribulation. Okay, not the tribulation. There's no such thing as the tribulation in the Bible. There isn't, you know, people have designated the events of uh, Larkin's chart as all the tribulation. But understand, that's Larkin's definition of the tribulation. That's not the Bible's definition. They were in tribulation during that time. And the comfort was that those who had died, that they would see them again. That, folks, that's indisputable. There's no arguing that. Why did these guys do that? These are intelligent men. Why do intelligent people lose their brain when trying to prove a pre-trib rapture? You know why? Because there is no proof. These things do not, these things do not prove anything. These, it's it's just not there. And so understand, and people use that argument all the time. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. That proves a pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, how can you be comforted if you got to go through seven years of tribulation? Uh, it didn't comfort us that we wouldn't go through tribulation. We've been promised to go through tribulation. Yea, all that live God in Christ shall suffer persecution. You know, in the world ye shall have tribulation. Paul told this church they were in tribulation. He's not comforting them they wouldn't never go through tribulation. He's comforting them they'll see their loved ones again because when you're in tribulation, a lot of times people are dying. And you know what? In the tribulation, when people are dying, we can comfort each other in the fact that we're going to see them again real soon because the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. With them. Who's them? The people that he's talking about, the people he is comforting them about, that they are going to see them again. That's the context. Folks, this is bad. This is bad. But what what they said here, what they say in this book is said and repeated and regurgitated by every pre-trib preacher. And these things are not proof. Folks, they are not proof. We can't pretend they're proof. Let's not play dumb. Don't treat your congregation like they're dumb. These things are bad arguments. They're red herrings. That's what you have to do when you're wrong. And so understand, I did not do a full thing, you know, cover everything that they do to defend a pre-tribulation rapture and all that and completely disprove it in this roughly 40-minute video. But I did show you well-respected, very influential people and used arguments that you have all heard in pre-tribulation churches. And these are not arguments. These are logical fallacies. These are rookie errors. But these guys, they should be better than that. And let me tell you, independent fundamental King James only Baptist, you should be better than that. You should never use any of these arguments because they are not arguments. They are not proofs. And so in the future, uh, we will uh, cover more of these things. We will look at arguments proving 
imminency. And let's let's use some proper biblical hermeneutics and see if the Bible actually teaches that. It doesn't. It's not, it's not what you're hearing. And so it, it really is effective, I think, to just go and look at these words and compare them to what we see in the Bible. And they don't match up. So understand, ladies and gentlemen, when you're arguing with somebody who's wrong and they start using the red herrings, don't let them get you off topic. Stay on topic. They're doing that because you're about to take them down. So stay on topic. And those of you that are using red herrings, do you want to win an argument that way? Is that satisfactory to you to just successfully get the guy who's tracking you down distracted so they don't? Why don't you, do you not want to get your doctrine right? I, I, I think most of you would. I think some of you are afraid to. Because at the end of the day, it's all about political pressure. The political pressure's on. You go against the status quo on, on this stuff, you, you're going you're gonna to feel it, without a doubt. But you know what? It's high time we get some men of God out there that have some backbones that don't give a rip about the politics, and they'll actually let the Bible be their final authority, that the Bible will make their decisions on where they stand on things and stop letting a club, a group of preachers, a denomination, a systematic theology probably written by a Calvinist or some unsaved person. Just don't fall for that stuff, ladies and gentlemen. You can trust the Word of God. We can be consistent in these things, and we should never use red herrings. That is weak. And don't let people get away with it. So thank you so much for watching this, and be ready for some more great content coming up in the near future and some real exciting interviews thank you so much for watching god bless